But first, I'd like to invite you to take your Bible and open it with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, as we continue this morning in our series entitled Finding Purpose in the Psalms. John Shelby Spong, former bishop of the Episcopal Church of Newark, wrote, Christianity is, I believe, about expanded life, heightened consciousness, and achieving a new humanity. It is not about closed minds, supernatural interventions, a fallen creation, guilt, original sin, or divine rescue. Among the things that Bishop Spong says Christianity is not about. Today, I'd like to focus on guilt. Guilt is a tricky subject. It's one about which there are very strong opinions in the world today. Now, I don't know if any of you are familiar with Bishop Spong. But there are other voices talking about guilt, which maybe you've heard, maybe some more popular level voices. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples, a couple of actors from Hollywood. Uh, Angelina Jolie said this, I don't believe in guilt. I think you should live completely free. Jude Law, another actor, said similar feelings here. He said, there's no regret. You can't regret. I mean, I've felt regret, but I've also refused to allow regret to sow a seed and live in me because I don't believe it. You feel it, it's like guilt, it's like jealousy, it's like all those horrible things. You've just got to snip them and get them out because they're no good. Even the pastor of the largest church in North America weighs in on the subject. When Joel Osteen says, it is a hard thing to let go of mistakes we've made and sins. God wants us to do that because He knows the guilt and the condemnation will keep us from becoming who He has created us to be. Now, as I said this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 51. Outside of Psalm 23, this may be the most well-known hymn in Israel's hymnal, and it speaks directly to this issue of guilt. You can probably see, based on what's on the screen, that we're not going to finish Psalm 51 today. So, that's your tip-off, okay? But what I would like to do this morning, what I try to do every week, and what we make our goal and our purpose and our focus here at Emmanuel Baptist Church is to consider what the Bible has to say about this and to shape our beliefs, our thoughts, and our actions on Scripture alone. And so to be honest, it doesn't really matter what Bishop Spong says about guilt or what Hollywood actors and actresses say or what Joel Osteen says or even what I say about guilt. The only opinion that matters, and I hesitate to use the word opinion, but I will, is God's. What does He say about the nature of guilt in His Word? And what does he say about dealing with guilt? 
in His Word. And so I'd like to dive into Psalm 51 this morning and see for ourselves. Before we do that, let's pray and ask God to help us to understand His Word. Heavenly Father, even as we studied during the Sunday school time this morning, we need Your help to understand Your Word without falling into error. It's too easy for us to just examine it intellectually, not ever allowing it to impact our hearts. Or it's too easy for us to set aside the Scriptures and simply embrace what we feel in our hearts to be true and good and right, and really not listen to what you have to say to us. And so I pray this morning you'd help us to avoid those errors and others that may be along the path. Help us, Lord, to read your word and to understand it. More than that, Lord, I pray that you would help us to embrace what your word says. To cling to it desperately. As though we are drowning men and women in a sea, clinging to our life preserver. Because it's the only thing that gives us hope. And I pray this morning that you'd help us to see and to understand what you have for us. That you do a work in our hearts through your word this morning by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to notice, before we even begin the text of the psalm itself, notice the heading of Psalm 51. To the chief musician, we've noted before, by the way, that that musical notation probably belongs to the psalm prior to this one. But notice the heading that gives us the biographical heading here, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. The heading of the psalm here is very helpful. It points us back to the book of 2 Samuel, chapters 11 and 12. We're not going to turn there, but you might jot that down if you want to look at it later. In those chapters of 2 Samuel, we read about David at the time when David foolishly involved himself in an adulterous affair with a woman named Bathsheba who was married to one of his most loyal soldiers. The affair resulted in her pregnancy, which David tried unsuccessfully to hide and to cover up. When he failed to do that, he hatched a plot to have her husband Uriah slain on the field of battle so that he could legally and lawfully marry Bathsheba and no one would be the wiser when she gave birth to a child nine months later. Of course, David did not consider that the Lord knew all about his sin and would not overlook his guilt in the affair or its cover-up. And so, through the courageous voice of Nathan, who was a faithful prophet, God brought David's sin to light and he brought the great king of Israel to his knees. The only thing that we read in 2 Samuel about David's response when he's confronted with his sin is found in verse 13 where it says, So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Kind of an underwhelming response considering that he has committed adultery, deception, murder, 
and a cover-up that went on for months. But when we come to the Psalms, we find much more. Actually, last year on May 15th, we studied Psalm 32. And Psalm 32 may also, and I think very likely, was also written in response to David's sin and confession there in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. But the heading of Psalm 51 leaves us no doubt as to its subject. These verses give us a great insight into David's heart as he came to grips with what he had done. Understand that David's guilt is real. He does not simply say in response, I don't believe in guilt, or I'll just snip it and get it out because it's no good. He doesn't say, I'm just going to let go of my sin because I know I can't become what God made me to be as long as I keep carrying around this guilt. What we see here in Psalm 51 is a powerful reminder to us that guilt is all too genuine. That its roots run deep into the very heart of our being and that our only hope is for the supernatural intervention and divine rescue that Bishop Spong denies. Look with me at Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. We begin Psalm 51. And I begin my outline with a very simple point. Have mercy. Have mercy. This is the opening cry of David's heart. But why does David start this psalm by asking for mercy? And, and what does that imply? Well, the request for mercy presupposes a need for mercy. That's not too deep, is it? He's asking for mercy because he needs mercy. He needs mercy because he deserves punishment as a consequence for his actions. And he can't bear it. And so he needs mercy. That's why he asks for mercy, because mercy is what he needs. On the other hand, the reason that he can expect to receive mercy is not that he needs it. The reason he can expect to receive it is because God has mercy. Notice how he focuses here in these opening verses on God's nature. There in verse 1, your loving kindness, the multitude of your tender mercies. Spurgeon said that the psalmist was asking God to act like himself. God, act like yourself. Show mercy, Lord, because you're merciful. 
Have compassion because your heart is tender. You see the appeal here. David is simply appealing to God based on God's very nature. Lord, you are compassionate, so please show me compassion. You're merciful, so show me mercy. This mindset is the very heart of any relationship that we might have with God. He is the Almighty Creator. He's the Lord of heaven and earth, the great I Am, the Savior, the Redeemer, the only wise King. And who am I? I'm nothing but a Johnny-come-lately rebel who can't take a breath without His permission. I would submit to you this morning that if you don't come to God as a beggar, on your knees in humble submission and desperate for mercy, then you don't know who God is at all. And you need to go back to Psalm 46 where you can read about God who is a refuge. To Psalm 47 and read about God, the King of all the earth. To Psalm 48 where you find God who is your guide even to death. Psalm 49 where you can read about God, the only one who can redeem your soul from the grave. In Psalm 50, to read about God who is a righteous judge. You need to read His Word so that you have an accurate vision of who God is. And when you do, you will see just how weak you are and how foolish it is for you to rebel against Him. It's not an accident that Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. David starts from the foundation of his own weakness and his own sinfulness. His desperate need for mercy and God's abundant supply of grace. That's the starting point. That's where you need to be at the starting point. God is awesome. You are crippled by sin. You are desperate for mercy, and God is overflowing with tenderness and compassion. When you start there, you're starting where David started. That's exactly where we need to be. And from there, you can have true wisdom. And that's what we see in the words of David's confession. You see, David has an understanding, but it's not just an understanding of who God is. He also knows the nature of his sin. He says at the end of verse 1, Blot out my transgressions. Erase the record of my rebellion. It's really what David is saying there. It's not just covering up his sin. He wants God to remove it. You see, sin is not just something that can be painted over and hidden. It has to be removed. Rubbed out, if you will. But even when sin is removed, and this is important, even when sin is removed, it leaves behind a stain that is set into the fiber of your very being. And so David, in verse 2, asks God to wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. That word wash there comes from uh, an old practice called fulling. 
And fulling was where a garment that was stained was actually put in water and trampled on in order to in order to get the stain out. And so it's as if David is saying, God, stamp out every last bit of evil and perversity in me. He doesn't just want the sin to be removed. He wants the stain and the residue of it that's left behind to be taken away. And then there in verse 2, he says, cleanse me from my sin. This phrase is connected to the practice in Numbers chapter 20. It's mentioned in a couple of other places in the, in the Old Testament law as well, but Numbers 20 where it speaks specifically about cleansing people who came in contact with a dead body. Okay. And so if they came in contact with a dead body, regardless of how that happened, they were considered unclean. And being unclean meant that they were cut off from the tabernacle or the temple. Any public worship gathering that was going on, they couldn't participate in until their purification was finished. Then they could be restored to come into the presence of God in the temple or the tabernacle, to join with the people of God in worship. And so what David is talking about here is his guilt that has built a barrier between him and God and between David and the rest of God's people so that he can't join them in worship. You see, what once had been a joy and a delight had become virtually unbearable. I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like that. Where because of the guilt and the shame of what you've done, the things that used to be a joy and a pleasure and a delight are now unbearable to you. Sometimes because of our guilt, we, we feel like we shouldn't be able to enjoy things. Or sometimes we feel like we can't face people. We're, we, we can't come and gather with people and worship God because we know that we're unworthy of it. And I think David was experiencing that. And so he, 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 is, he, he asks for mercy. He pleads for mercy. And that includes the restoration of his fellowship with God and with his fellow believers. He wants to be purified, cleansed, so I can once again go into the temple and the tabernacle, so I can go with the people of God and enjoy and delight in the worship that David used to enjoy. But he can't now because of the guilt that he is experiencing. Now why was he cut off like this? Well again, the, the next verses then show us really how David understands his guilt. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. My guilt is real. My guilt is real. It's not imaginary. 
And these verses are so powerful because David is acknowledging not just the fact of his sin, but his constant awareness of it. You know, we talk sometimes about people having rose-colored glasses. You know what that means, right? They put rose-colored glasses on and everything looks rosy, right? Because the glasses are the filter. That's the thing that colors everything they see. And David is saying, my guilt, it's, it's, it's my sin, it's before me, it's in front of my eyes. Everything I see is filtered through it. And so, things don't look rosy. Things are awful. Everything that I see is, is, is affected by it because my sin is constantly in front of my eyes. I'm always aware, but I can't escape it. Some people might say, you know, you just got to let go of your guilt. You got to focus on your successes and not your failures. But David says, my sin is always before me. He can't go anywhere or do anything without being reminded of what he has done and how he's rebelled against the Lord. The way he characterizes his sin in verse 4 has made some people question whether David actually even wrote this psalm. When David says against you, you only have I sinned, they say, well, how could this be talking about David's sin against Bathsheba and Uriah when he says his sin is only against God? And they say, well, the heading of the psalm is probably mistaken. You know, somebody later thought this was just reflective of the feelings of David, and so they just put that on there. But I don't think there's a conflict here at all. In fact, what I think David is doing in verse 4 as he is acknowledging the most significant aspect of his sin. Now get this, this is really important. Why was his adultery so terrible? Why was his adultery so terrible? Was it because he was unfaithful to his wife? Was it because he used his position as king and his influence and his authority to take advantage of Bathsheba? Was that why it was so terrible? I would submit to you, no. Now, please don't misunderstand. Those were terrible things. Those were despicable things. But there's something far worse at the root of it. And it's this. What made his adultery so terrible was that he spurned the very faithfulness of God on which marital faithfulness is built. And he also spurned the absolute moral purity of God. To which God has called everyone who trusts in him. You can read Leviticus. You shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And David had rejected that. David had spurned that purity and that holiness. What about murder? Why was David's murder of Uriah so vile? Well, the same reason that murder is always an offense. Because that individual, that person whose life you have taken was created in the image of God. That's exactly what the Bible says in Genesis 9 when God says that when a man takes another man's life, his life is now forfeit. Because he says, in the image of God, he made man. David's sin of murder, though it was directed against Uriah, was actually and 
primarily an offense against the God whose image Uriah bore. And so when David says against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, what he is saying is that his sin was a great evil that was committed against the infinitely good God of heaven and that made it infinitely bad. However evil it was against the other people that were involved, his sin against God was worse. Worse even than its effect on Bathsheba, Uriah, and even the child that they conceived whose life was taken in judgment. Now all of this adds up to one thing, and David expresses it here for us, that God's testimony against David and indeed against all men is absolute truth. You see, God is the judge. Psalm 50 makes that very clear. God is the judge of all the earth. And when God judges mankind, He finds all men to be guilty. And God declares a sentence of condemnation on all mankind because of our guilt. And what David is saying here in this verse is that God is just when He offers testimony of our sin. And God is blameless when He condemns sinners in their sin. No one, ultimately, can claim that God is unjust when He condemns you and me for our sin. That's what David is saying. But as he thinks about his sin and what he has done, David becomes aware of something else. Look at verses 5 and 6. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. What we see here in verses 5 and 6, not only is my guilt real, but my guilt runs deep. My guilt runs deep. Sometimes, when we do something that's hurtful or shameful, we wonder where it came from. You know, we act like it's an isolated incident that is totally out of character. That's why these two verses are so important. Because they reveal to us David's understanding. Not just of the sinfulness of his adultery, his lies, and his murder, which were sinful and corrupt. But David understood the root from which those sins sprang up. And that's what he's speaking about in verses 5 and 6. Where do those sins come from? Where do your lies come from? Where does the lust in your heart come from? Where does the desire for independence and self-rule come from? David recognized. And he says, Behold, 
It's as if this revelation came to him as he thought about the sin that was always before his face. I was brought forth in iniquity, he says. He's speaking there of the very act of labor and delivery through which he entered his life. Being brought forth. But he recognizes that he was twisted. He was perverted in his very self from the day that he came forth from his mother's womb. He says he was even conceived in sinfulness. That's not slander on his mother's character. He's simply being honest about how deep the vein of sin runs in this human flesh. We could summarize what he's saying as this, for as far back as he could possibly go, he was a sinner by nature and a sinner by choice. The corruption of adultery and lying and murder were not the exceptions in an otherwise honorable life. Please understand that. David's adultery, his lying, his murder, they were not the exception. And whatever your sins are, they are not the exception in an otherwise honorable life. I don't know how to say that and soften the blow of that. It's a hard thing to confront. It's a hard thing to come face to face with and to admit that when I act that way, when I'm selfish, when I'm hurtful, when I am uh, uh, just all interested in pleasing myself, I'm not acting in an inconsistent way. I'm not doing something that's out of character, something that is new and novel that I never discovered before. David says, this was how I was born. This goes all the way back to the beginning. I started this way. And these actions are simply the outworking of the way I began my life. It's my nature which is twisted and corrupt and perverse. And then he says in verse 6, Behold, again, Another revelation. God desires truth in the inner parts. God desires truth deep down within me. And David has said, wait, but the vein of sin runs deep down within me. Yes. And here we come to the heart of the matter. Because God desires truth, faithfulness, uprightness, But when David looks within himself, he doesn't find that. He doesn't find truth and uprightness. He finds sin and iniquity. Please understand that God doesn't hate sin because it inconveniences him. He doesn't hate sin because it annoys him. He punishes sin because he delights in truth. God hates evil. Because he loves good. It's not just that David's actions were sinful. It was that there was corruption down in the very deepest part of him. And so it wasn't enough to just change his behavior. You see? It wasn't enough to just stop doing those things. Or just to, 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 to you know, turn over a new leaf. Or to whitewash the outside. 
That's not enough when the corruption runs all the way down. What he needed was God to implant wisdom within him. That's what he speaks about there in verse 6, that God would implant wisdom deep down in the hidden part. External rules and reforms are always going to be limited in their effect and their endurance in our life. Because what we need more than anything is an understanding of God's truth and the spiritual power to follow it. And this is where we come to and what David expresses in the next verses. Verses 7 through 9, he says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. The final portion here, David says, have hope. Have hope. David returns to the same words and the same images that he used at the beginning in verses 1 and 2. There he described his sin. And he also spoke about the merciful cleansing that he wanted from God. And he returns using the same terminology and the same images here. Now our translation doesn't reflect it this way. But I think these verses and these words are spoken with a voice of faith so that he spokes of his hope about the experience of God's mercy. In other words, he's saying, you will purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. You will wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. You will make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones you've broken may rejoice. David believes that God will do these things. He's asked for them. He's asked God to do them. And now he steps forward with hope that God will indeed do what he's asked, that God will show mercy. Hear the confidence in David's voice. The expectation here. Since his faith is in the God who is full of loving kindness and a multitude of tender mercies, David believes that God will be merciful to him. And he believes that God will have compassion on him. And so he speaks this way. Lord, you will purge me and I'll be clean. Lord, you will wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Lord, you'll restore. In my ears, the sound of joy and gladness so that I can once again dance and rejoice in you. The boldness of David here, I think, is really striking. I don't know about you, but I have a hard time when I have failed, and I know that I've failed. I have a hard time coming to God and saying, God, I'm going to rejoice in you. I'm going to, I'm going to be excited. I'm going to sing praise. I can't wait. I'm going to be clean and whiter than snow. I don't feel like it usually, you know. But David speaks with such intense faith here, such confidence and boldness. I mean, think about it. For one, for one whose wickedness began in his mother's womb, whose inward parts there is no truth 
For him to speak of being pure and clean is the height of foolishness. For a person in whom the stain of sin is set so deep that no amount of laundering can possibly make it white again. To then speak of being whiter than snow, it's preposterous. For one whose corrupt thoughts and actions have polluted the joyous shouts of God's people in worship. To even think about dancing and praising God in the congregation of believers, it's ridiculous. Except, except for one fact. It's this. That he went to God's throne seeking mercy and grace. except for the blood sacrifice that was offered by Christ on the cross Calvary. And the infinite mercy that it supplies. If not for that, we would say David is speaking foolishness. His hope is ridiculous. There's no way that someone who is that polluted and stained can possibly be clean. For someone who's committed adultery and murder and lies to say that he's white like snow. Like that there's not even a stain left on him. Ridiculous. If not, for the infinite mercy that was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Consider if you will, this morning, how deep your sin runs. Consider how dark its stain is. How fully it corrupts you and everything you touch. And then, consider the blood of Christ that is all-sufficient, able to cleanse and purge every remnant trace of sin, not just its presence, but its effects and the sorrow and the grief that it produces. Though you are a sinner, you may yet be de-sinned. That's really what that word purge means there. David says, de-sin me, Lord. <laughs> You'll de-sin me and I will be pure, without even a trace. Though you are stained with impurity, you may yet be made white as snow. Though you are overcome by the crushing weight of guilt, you may yet rejoice as he mends the bones that he has broken. Though you are cut off from fellowship with God, you may yet be restored as he blots out all your iniquities. But here's the key question. How does a guilty sinner, guilty by choice and by birth, receive this mercy from God? How can you receive it? It's only one way. It's by faith. Now, I don't say that just generically. Let me be specific. It's not faith in your own goodness. It's not faith in yourself. It's not faith in your ability to turn over a new leaf. It's not faith in a 12 Steps to No More Sin program. 
external changes will not fix the problem because it goes all the way down to the deepest part of you. It goes all the way back to the very beginning of your life. You can't reform it away. You can't paint over it. You can't learn a new behavior that won't fix the problem. You need to have faith in the Word of God. Why do I say that? Because it's God's Word that teaches us that He is filled with loving kindness. That He is full of tender mercies. It's in God's Word that we learn about His generous gift. You know, John 3.16, where God loved the world so much that He gave His only Son. It's in the Scriptures that you learn about Christ's bloody death as our substitute. And in the Scriptures that you learn about His infinite mercy. Will you believe what the Word of God says? Will you, like David, cry out for mercy from the merciful God? Will you take hold of God's promise to cleanse the sinner and claim it for yourself? Will you trust yourself to God's tender care? This is hard. This is really hard. Because if you are going to be cleansed if you're going to be uh, washed and your sins are going to be blotted out, then you must do what David did. You must become transparent and open and honest with God. The problem with open and honest transparency is this. When we begin to tell someone else who and what we really are, when we begin to show them, there's always the risk that we'll be rejected. There's always the risk that they will use that against us. And we have all experienced that. Haven't we? We've all experienced that at some point in our life. And so we have the hurt from that and we don't ever want to hurt that way again. And so we don't like to let anyone see or know who we are and we want to pull back and pull back and hide ourselves and cover those parts of us that we don't like, that we're not comfortable with, that we know that others will not like either. But you know something? You can, you can show those things to God. You can tell Him those things. And He will not. He will not recoil in disgust or fear or anger. He won't. How do I know that? Because He's full of loving kindness. He's full of tender mercies and compassion. Will you trust Him and His Word and find that the very guilt that saps all of the flavor and the satisfaction out of life can be removed and replaced by joy, the joy of fellowship with God and with His people? I hope that today 
you will turn to him and cry out for mercy just as David did. You can be forgiven, washed, cleansed, and restored. He's promised. Will you take him at his promise?